Welcome to the CDC Podcast, Minisode 13. Joining me this month is games and digital art creator, Lauren Schmidt. Hello, how's it going? For those of you who don't know, the idea behind these minisodes is for myself and a co-host to highlight three games each. These are games that haven't gotten a lot of criticism or much attention at all. The hopes is that one of you intrepid listeners will try one of them out and write about it. The games on the docket range from itch.io art games to procedural indie games right on up to AAA games that have slipped through the cracks. Lauren, your first game, please. Uh, the first game I'd like to cover is uh, Tamperdrome by G.P. Lackey. Okay, so what is this? So G.P. Lackey does a lot of really interesting and generative pieces. I think he works in Construct primarily, although he may also use other tools. A lot of them are like a, a little aesthetic space with like broad possibility within it. Like there will be one that makes like an endless stream of like weird monster faces. And they're usually like animated in some way and have like neat effects on top of them. He's really good at evoking personality and emotion with very few brush strokes. Yeah, I'm looking at this. This is some old school graphic design. Yeah, he has, like, a really amazing touch with it. Like, I think he's able to evoke a lot. I find that really impressive. He's, like, one of those people who takes a very low level of fidelity and brings to it, like, a really keen graphic sensibility and is able to do a lot with it because of that. Yeah, it's kind of uh, this strange animation. (laughs) Yeah, like, a little weird sine wave-based bobbings and so on, yeah. So do you know anything more about this? Um, Yeah, so a lot of these were made over... A long period of time before Tamper Drone came out, sort of as little one-offs. Some of them ended up on Twitter. There's one, uh, I think it's called Generate a Cat. It's a bot that does cat faces, weird, scary cats. Some of them are, like, very spectral. Others are very cute. Yeah, Generate a Cat bot. It's at Generate a Cat on Twitter. Um, yeah, so that and some of its siblings were asking very much for some way of getting out into the world. So Tamper Drone was born which is the collection of a number of these little things. There's like one that makes beautiful little islands. Um, there's one that does really wonderful ghosts. And it's got uh, the interesting sound design that goes with it. Each uh, of the six things has their own, like, not soundtrack, soundscape. Yeah, I thought that was neat. I think I hadn't actually seen any of them in the context of sound until Tamperdrome came out, and it really changes, like, how full they are. So... Other than just, like, an, as an interesting visual, what do you find interesting about them? So, yeah, I'm primarily captivated by them aesthetically. I also think it's just a really neat format. I like the idea of, like, these little perfect crystalline pieces that are all attached together under this one umbrella. I find it pretty compelling. It's sort of like visiting, like, a zoo or a botanic garden or something. Is there anything else that you can think to say about them? Yeah, uh, one thing that I find really striking about GP's work is that he's this amazing light touch, like, on stage, um, at Fantastic Fest. Um, he put together, like, a little frog generator in, like, 20 minutes in front of a live audience. And it's just amazing seeing someone, like, so quickly make something so robust using, like, tools that seem totally alien to me. I don't know. It's, it's like, fascinating to see the process behind some of that stuff. Okay. Well, uh, I guess I'll move on to uh, my first game. And uh, it's this strange little thing that caught my eye on Itch.io called Offline. Offline. Okay. By 
Paul Clarisso. Oh, Paul. Okay, yeah, I haven't played that one. I love Paul's work, though. What caught my eye was the circular glyph of, like, a subway train just traveling through what looked like a psychedelic tunnel. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I said I had to try it. And you're, like, at the controls of a subway train. And, like, all these buttons, most of which seem like they should be just aesthetics, are actually functional. They'll turn on various lights in the cabin. They'll, there's the accelerator pedal. They'll turn lights on and off in the tunnel itself. But it, what's really strange is there's this TV screen on, like, the right side of it where with about ten buttons in each. And, like, one of the buttons will show, like, a security cam image of what you're actually watching right here, like a second. But everything else will, like, create, like, laser-created eye shapes just over superimposed in random patterns around each other. Mm-hmm. Additionally, there's, like, a phone on the right side that if you pick up will change the soundscape from, like, a warbling to, like, there's this whispering in the background. And it's described as a short, unending daydream experience. And that is really good description. That's, like, the perfect description because this is... I could see zoning out to this, especially since there's like a button that is literally create psychedelia in front of your eyes. I have no idea what it does except create like a physical, you know, those those old fashioned window screen savers where you have like the, the lines twisting in and around themselves. Yeah. It just pu- it just puts that in like the person's eyes are creating that. Right. As if it's part of the physical world somehow. Or that the like the driver is seeing like they're pushing a button to have the driver activate this weird thing in their vision, like right as if like the control panel is somehow tapped into your brain. Yeah, and I've I, I played around with it a lot. That you and there's also there's like this uh like this vaguely transparent polygonal ballerina in the train tracks that just zooms along with you. Interesting. I have no idea what it represents, but after a while, just staring at all these colors and changing, I have no idea if this is a warning I should, but I feel just in case, if you have like, if you're like prone to epilepsy, don't play this game. <laughs> yeah, definitely like that sort of experience. <laughs> um, I'm curious about the dancer. It, like that almost casts it in a more personal narrative light as opposed to being a bunch of abstract visual effects. Yeah, and I should mention, like, when you're going through the tubble, it flashes, of course, but the dancer, after every micro-flash, changes position to create, like, a zoetrope animation style. So you have, like, the dancer twirling and spinning and, like, doing these, the single pirouette over and over and over in a cycle, but as it travels along, and, of course, because you're traveling along, it sort of leaves some fading after images of where it was before as the train car travels forward. Fascinating. I'll have to play this. Um, have you seen Station Phantom? I don't, I don't think I'm saying it correctly. It's another game by Paul that has trains in it? Uh, I have not. This is just something I, um, I've so found. It's, uh, it's around. almost non-interactive vignette. I think it was done for a jam or something. You're in a seemingly derelict train station looking about, and once in a while a train will come by. It's very, very dark, and the train illuminates the space, and there are all these really stark shadows cast by the framing of the train windows and such. And you get silhouettes of seemingly ghostly people that you can't see, but that cast shadows when the train illuminates them. It's very stark. 
I'm interested in the fact that there seems to be some sort of train thread here. I wonder if they're related in ways other than that as well. Well, so you get the outside of the train in one, and you get the inside in the other. Right. They seem to be this fairly thematically related, from what I can tell. I'll have to play offline. From what I can tell, the uh, Station Phantom is... It's seemingly more, I guess, standard in its construction because it, it's like a, a very detailed pixel art sort of construction instead of the the Unity 3D models that Offline uses. Yeah, it's, um, it's 3D run through like some sort of lo-fi filter. Like it's actually a 3D space. Can you walk, can, are you able to walk around? My it? recollection is that you can't move, but you can look around. Oh. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah, they're, like, really interesting commentaries on each other. Like, in the one, you're, like, in the driver's seat of this train, operating all these controls, and in the other, you're very passive. Uh, there's no copyright date on offline. I was trying to see if, like, one was created after the other, or if they're, like, connected. Because uh, yeah. Station Fence yeah. 2015. Yeah. But... A little older. I wonder when offline is from. Huh. Mm. That's a neat thing for bringing that to my attention. Even if it just... I don't suppose there's any meaning behind it. More like just an like a experiment to create these visuals. To, I don't know to see if they can because they thought it was interesting. But still, I feel it does create like a, a, a strange feeling in me, and I feel like that's just sort of worth bringing to attention. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it's built very deliberately around a particular set of feelings and perhaps kind of broad concepts. Although, yeah, it seems like it might not have like a specific narrative or, like, ideology in mind. It might be a little more general than that. Although the eyes remind me of the Hitchcock movie Spellbound during those dream sequences. Hmm. But, but maybe that's just a bit too obscure for <laughs> for anyone else. eyes <laughs> everywhere in the NBC right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, how about we go to your second game? Sure, yeah. Um, I think I'll transition into Soup 0.9. Which is, is a very strange experience, kind of way at the end of several spectrums of how games can be shaped. So, it was made, I believe, in 2007. It's, uh, who's the creator? I'm not familiar with the creator. Oh, I don't remember their name offhand. You can, uh, I was looking around for it, and there's quite a, a lot of things, but I'm not sure if this is the exact game you're talking about. Yeah, so it's, for those of you who are familiar with uh, LSD, which is a PlayStation game that realizes a dream journal in, in dimensional spaces that you can inhabit. This is apparently inspired somewhat by that, although it's like a little game made by one person as like a, more as a, a mood piece than as like a large interactive world like LSD is. So soup consists of one room with a texture applied to the walls, usually like a sort of collage photographic texture of some sort. Some of them feel more drawn. And then there's usually like one sprite character in the middle of the room and some sort of looping soundscape. And it's really just those three ingredients, like uh, each little snapshot experience you have with the game is like a different reshuffling of those components, but it's always those three components. And despite the paucity of ingredients, you get these tremendously emotionally compelling experiences. I think it's a really amazing example of like how 
effectively, you can create space, both emotionally and physically, with very few moving parts. Um, it looks like the strangest, most disorderly bookshelf I've ever seen. <laughs> I know the screenshot you mean. Yeah, uh, you get a lot of other ones, too. Like, some of them feel like cityscapes or, like, total abstracts or outdoor spaces. Is it purely procedural? Is there, like, a method behind the madness? I think it's generated, yeah. I, I think they're not authored combinations, but I'm not actually sure what's going on behind the curtain. That's my impression, though. Oh, it's a Japanese freeware game. Okay, so I'm looking at this other one, and it looks like various photos of clouds. Right, yeah. So you get all the walls of this room that you're in are textured, and depending on like how the dice roll or perhaps how it was hand composed, you'll get a different texture and a different soundscape and a different little character in the middle of the room each time you play it. And it, it really varies wildly in terms of feel, depending yeah. on like what it draws. I'm watching this video and the the first one had the character was a schoolgirl and the second one it was a spherical ball of flies as the sprite character. So, yeah, I find this, I'm really bored its way into my head. I found it tremendously effective, and it became an important reference point for me. Like, if I'm making something and I feel like maybe I'm adding too much complexity or, like, adding too many features, I, like, try to think of this game and think, okay, well, did I make something as effective as soup? Because if I didn't, I added too much. It's strange, because... Like, I can't imagine this being interesting, and yet I'm watching it, and I'm sort of entering that same fugue state I did with Offline. Yeah. You just start really, staring at it. It really works. It's tremendously effective. And, I, I mean, you have to be pretty skilled to pull that off, I think, but it's, and then it's, it's an interesting example of, like, how spare you can make things and really, like, create full emotional spaces, I think. I think I've figured out the type of criticism I want to hear about these games. Someone get high and then play them, because I want to know if that substantially changes the experience. I'm not sure it does. Yeah, I'd just say without doing it. One other criticism I think you could level at this sort of experience is that they tend to be fairly inaccessible. There's a fair amount of patience involved in like getting to a state where you can really appreciate them. Well... It's kind of like all with when you get to, like, art that is just delved itself into postmodernism, where you can't understand the art on itself. You have to understand a series of decisions and creations of previous artworks that led to this one. Right. And and certainly having that context and, like, asking questions about where someone is coming from or their process and getting a, a slightly more analytical lens out is, like, not a bad thing to ask of people, but it certainly does limit who can experience them. Because, like, if you don't have, like, a lot of material you can grab on, like, a traditional story or or even traditional repeatable mechanics that you can engage with, once you're at that point, you have to, well, like, for soup, I can imagine, well, like, your starting base would have to be Dear Esther. Then you have to figure out, like, I don't know, uh, Zolani mentioned this a while ago, Box Simulator. And then you have to figure out the next step before you can get to soup, before you can hope before to understand. Before you can talk to it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like in, in one sense, you can, like, really just enter the room and be there. Like, 
it's approachable in that sense. Like the, the emotional landscape is right there. But yeah, it, it's also like formally quite foreign to people who are expecting something that has a, a certain shape, you know. And then, of course, it's by a Japanese developer, which means it's probably, or at least that's what this uh, these descriptions are telling me. Yeah, that's the fact, as well. I'm not familiar with the developer. There's also, uh, like, hiragana characters in, like, menu screens, so I assume it's Japanese. So that means it's coming from a different background entirely and influenced by different things than what we're used to. Right, and there are probably cultural touchstones there that go right over my head. Like, one of the images I saw was, like, a bamboo forest, and the character was, like, this hooded figure with, like, a bright orange light carrying what looked like an orange-lighted baby. And I don't know if that's, like, a Japanese myth of something you'd find in a forest. Yeah, yeah, or maybe not at all. Yeah, it's really... Or it's completely random, and I'm reading too much into it. Kind of the, the joy and sorrow of playing things across a cultural barrier. Like, there's always humanity there that you can connect with, and then maybe there are very deliberate references that have, like, exactly the right level of indirectness, and you just miss those entirely. I know, but at the same time, I'm usually against this type of art, especially, like, in the museum space, because the only way to understand it is usually then the the artist then creating this 10-page essay detailedly explaining it. And which suddenly cuts out all other explanations or the- or uh, readings. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I find myself generally opposed to needing an explanation. Or artists. I, I like when there's some sort of entry point into things. I, I don't necessarily think that like this or the two pieces we were talking about, the Claire suit, are yeah. inaccessible in that way. Like I think you could probably just spend some time with them and ask some questions and and find resonance. But yeah, certainly you can go way off the deep end with that sort of thing. Keeping this moving along, my second game, I'm going back to the mobile space. with, And this is a game I have wanted to play for a while, and then it wouldn't let me purchase it because there was something wrong with Google's back end. And then a week ago it became free. So it's called The End of the World by Sean Wenham. Oh. I do not know if I'm pronouncing that name correctly. And it's a. it looks like it was like painted in watercolors, and it's about, I can only guess about the guy feeling the end of the world because his relationship broke up, except then you go outside the apartment building and you find the buildings literally have crumbled, and you're the only human being around. And it initially gives the impression of some kind of catastrophe on a more individual scale. Yeah, another thing you can do, though, is whenever you see a clock, you can press a clock, and it will uh, change the scene to as long as you're holding the clock, what it looked like before. So when he's waking up alone in this blue-tinted bedroom, you press the clock, and suddenly the box is unpacked. He's in bed with his partner, and the room is rose-colored. And it's also got this neat, like, sort of pixelated watercolor style. It, it's like it's made how it's sh- everything is shaped how you would shape it if you were working with like pixel art, except it's made in watercolor. Yeah, I'm looking at some images here. It also has a quality of working with like a palette knife or something, like a, a large hard surface for applying color of some sort. Like there are these very simple silhouettes with hard edges. Yeah. And 
you press press on the right screen to walk right, you press on the left side of the screen to walk left, and then you have to just find a few different, I guess, important locations mm-hmm. and tap on the uh, flash. And every time there's a flashing object, you tap on it, and it's like if it's a door, you'll walk through the door. If it's a closet, you'll open the closet. Huh. But But if it's like a painting or a billboard, you'll click it, and it'll bring back some memory. And then he'll appear back in the apartment, and touching the clock will change the scene that is shown. Like, there's been an advancement in his mental space huh. for remembering. So you snap back to this other frame of reference, and you're playing there for a little while? No, you can just look at it. Well, you, ah. can, you can sort of move the screen, but it's like, this is what the past was. It's immutable. Right, right. And you're just getting a glimpse into it in this ruined world. Then, like, I don't know if... back to, like, where you were after that. As soon as you let go of the right. clock, yes. Oh, that sounds pretty compelling. And then you get this sort of uh, this uh, dream fantastical sequence, because once you get, like, all, collect all the uh, parts, which I think there's only three of them, you then sort of start chasing after this phantom of the partner that he lost, uh-huh. and eventually it just chases it through, like, a sort of changing landscape of dream images in the background, and eventually you'll reach a cliff, and he'll just jump, like leap of faith, jump after this image into this bright red, I don't know what it's supposed to represent. Mm-hmm. It takes about 15 minutes to play, and there's just something, it's, again, it's part aesthetics, part I don't know what, but it connects on like some fundamental level of wanting to know what is this. It looks pretty interesting. Yeah, I don't know if I'd relate to it as a story, but it's definitely very beautiful, and it, it seems structurally pretty interesting. Like, it, there's this whole sort of wave of adventure games without puzzles that we're seeing kind of in the wake of Kentucky Route Zero and a couple of other experiences along those lines. I'm really enjoying them because I love the form so much. Like, Oh, there's just so many opportunities to, like, really characterize people well and create, like, amazing, like, well-worn, handmade-feeling spaces to inhabit. It's a really cool format for that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a mood piece because there's no dialogue and it's just a couple of images to, like, help you give, like, like a formal bracing structure of where this guy is. Right. And the rest is just the details are going to be filled in by you. Yeah. Also, you can smoke in this game. You tap on the character, brings up a pack of cigarettes, you drag the cigarette to the character, and he'll smoke. So at any time, you can, like, enter into this sort of contemplative, like, sitting still smoking state. <laughs> huh. I don't know if it's contemplative, but it definitely gives a certain ability to act like someone would. Right. So I'm curious, when I see things like this, to what extent do they feel like an on-rails, almost cinematic experience? And to what extent do they feel like spaces one inhabits? Uh, I don't know, because if this were a film, it'd be pretty bad because you still have to do all the in-between things, the walking, the backtracking. So on that realm, I'm not sure it would pass, but the fact that you're actually the one holding down, you have to be fundamentally engaged in that aspect, right? kind of changes what it's doing. Right. It's a, it's a sort of a strange challenge. Like, if you have a very specific idea of the type of experience you want to hand someone and, you know, down to, like, 
specific motions characters make and timing and like lines of dialogue delivered in particular contexts. And yet you want to deliver it as a game or as some sort of interactive digital experience. Like how, how does one do that in a way that fits the form? How can it be adapted? Like what devices do you use to like do that in a way that's natural and really takes advantage of what you're using? And I, I don't know, it's, I think a lot of the time people end up subconsciously borrowing directly from film, which, which is dangerous. It has a whole different set of limitations. And one yeah, adopts I mean, those, like, kind of subconsciously a lot of the time, I think. Well, it is the dominant, like, visual form of our culture. And gosh, I mean, people grasp for legitimacy so much. Like, making games, like, especially if you want to make something that feels really personal and expressive, People just want some sort of legitimacy, right? They don't want people to see Mario when they look at it. They want people to see something that's, like, weighty and emotional and, like, goddamn it, pay attention to what I'm saying because it's serious. So people, like, grasp that film, which is, like, highly regarded and has a history of being taken seriously, right? But I think it's, yeah, I don't know, it's dangerous. You run into a lot of, like, funny mental traps if you, like, accept all of that without asking questions about how to apply it. To put that back in the game, it's like you say cinematic, and yeah. that's not a description I would have ever put to it. Right. Because it doesn't, so, it doesn't strive for that. Yeah, cinematic in the sense of framed or pre-sculpted or linear or using the tools of film. I, I'm not sure those are best descriptions because, like, most games are, are linear. Right. It's just they're not... I guess, prescriptive about their linearity. It, it just kind of wait, they wait around for you to get to where mm-hmm. you need to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly like a spectrum there. Like, I would say there are like elements of that in any game, like say most first-person shooters that have a linear progression through a series of environments. So I'm, I'm using that in like a pretty loose sense. Yeah. It's also at the same point that cinematic games, when they're at their best, they're striving for an emotion with similar visuals that the movie version can give off, but they don't try to directly copy what it would be like in a film. Yeah, yeah, it's not the same medium. Like, I think you really can't do that and have it work. There's always going to be, like, some moment when something clashes. You get those moments in games with cutscenes, for instance, where... You have some huge weighty thing happening that seems really urgent with like, you know, whatever background check. And then like it transitions into you playing and you're like, oh, I guess I'm playing now. And you like stand there awkwardly for a moment when you're supposed to be like running full tilt to escape, like whatever the train's going to hit you or whatever. Yeah, that happens a lot. So let's keep this trucking and your third game. Yeah. So recently I've been really fascinated by very early RPGs, like... People think of, say, like, the first Final Fantasy as an early RPG. I'm talking a little bit before that. This is, there are a lot of really good examples of this in the home computer market in Japan in the mid-80s. Particularly interested in games by Falcom, the company that did the Dragon Slayer series. So, RPGs nowadays are, like, generally fairly fixed in form. Like, you have a few different established threads, right? You've got your tactics game, you've got, like... Western RPGs with, like, the open world and, like, customizable player character and whatnot. You've got, like, your Final Fantasy format things, which are, like, a little more sculpted and focused on, like, a a specific narrative experience. But for the most part, most RPGs you see these days have this 
sort of continuity of tradition, right? Like you, you can see the influences that the game is bringing to bear and like how they're differing from that. And it's like really a conversation with the, with that tradition most of the time. But these early days are really interesting to me because instead of this fixedness of form, you get people playing with structure and mechanic like every single game and like very deliberately making choices about like how they sculpt the mechanics and the shape of the world and the flow of things and the way it feels, um, which is fascinating to me. So why uh, the one you said here, you, you, title you gave to me was Legacy of the Wizard, right. which so, is English. So Legacy English of the Wizard is an NES, well, the one that I'm familiar with is the NES port of a home computer game, which is not available in the West. It's an open world action role-playing game. So you start off in this really beautiful hub area. You're like in your family home and you can like pick one of various really nicely illustrated and designed characters and then... This is like kind of wonderful, vibrant, unreal feeling cityscape that you can see in the background. It's kind of castle backdrop. And then all of a sudden you're in this like very, very grid-based meandering dungeon space, like which branches out in many directions at once immediately. It's actually structurally not dissimilar from some modern RPGs like the Dark Souls series. You have all of these interconnected spaces that you can explore in various orders, and there isn't really a fixed progression enforced. Like, for instance, maybe if you go, like, down into, like, the weird blue lumpy bubble dungeon or whatever, you can find the item that you need to unlock a door in a chest. But you could also probably, like, go five different directions and find redundant versions of it or like work up enough gold that you can buy it outright and not find any of them. It's a really softly gated system. Like unlike something like Metroid where it's like, okay, now you need item number five to unlock door number five, which is orange always like the item. You know, like Super Metroid's got like the red doors for the red missiles and like the green doors for the super missiles, which are green, right? Like there's this um this is very rigid order you can progress in those games in and this is like interesting because it has the same overall structure but it's a lot softer in terms of the gating i'm looking at some of the screenshots here and i might have confused it for a 2d platformer yeah yeah absolutely um so it, it plays like a platformer all the characters have like a magic attack which is sort of like short range Mega Man bullets or something they have various speeds and ranges and power levels and whatnot and All of them can run and jump, although they have, like, various speeds and jump heights. And then there are also differences in terms of, like, which items each character can use. So you end up having to rotate through various characters to access different areas in the game. It has a a pretty fascinating cryptic quality to it. Like, you're immediately able to go many places and explore probably a third of the game, but... There are a lot of things that you don't understand at all for quite a while. Like, you'll get an item and you won't even know how to interact with it or, like, what it's supposed to be a picture of for a little while, and you end up having to do all this experimentation. And then you're like, oh, oh, my God, this moves, like, a third of the blocks in the game. Now I can go through walls. Wow, and that opens up new areas. Or, like, you'll find out that some item, like, warps you from place to place, but you won't know how to use it effectively until quite a bit later, and then you find some area where it's tremendously useful. So it's got that old, it's got that old school dungeon 
I guess, dungeon delving vibe. Yeah, in a in a sort of an interesting, loose way. Like it really invites experimentation and exploration. Effectively, it's um it feels less like banging your head against the wall until you can make progress, and more like there are all these different avenues of investigation open at once, and there's always an interesting question to ask, which will yield some kind of result. I'm just I'm looking at the world map, and it's this 2D side part of thing, but it looks. It looks like one of those quilts that has been made over 20 generations with each person just sewing in some random fabric. Yeah. Yeah, the the separate environments all feel very self-contained. Like, they all feel really aesthetically separate from one another. They all have, like, really compelling personalities. And it tends to have a sort of a piecemeal quality, like there aren't seamless transitions between them. That said, it's a really well-constructed map. There are a lot of really interesting choices in terms of flow. They'll do really effective transitions from one area to another that just, like, feels right in that context. And there are a lot of really neat little teases, like you walk through some meandering labyrinth of ladders and platforms, and you'll end up, like, poking your head into another area you've never seen before, but you may only have partial access to it. And then you come back there later, and you recognize the tiny little, like, peak hole that you were looking through before. It's really uh, diligent about teasing new areas before you can access them. It has really interesting flow. Did you play this back in the day? No, or no, this is a recent find for me. I've historically not been very into RPGs, although I've like, and I've tried to make it, try to make decisions about games to play with an open mind because there are a lot of really good things that are not necessarily in forms that I would gravitate toward naturally. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, I think this game is, like, maybe the most well-crafted, approachable game by Falcom in that era. But I think a lot of the other ones they made in the mid-'80s are pretty fascinating, too, and they're worth checking out as well. If nothing to see, but, like, that, since Dark Souls is so popular now, that lineage where that design philosophy came from. Yeah, it's always funny to see forms crop up in a completely different context like that. Well, I guess we move on to my final game. Yeah, what did you pick? Something more traditional for for me. It's a, a new point-and-click adventure game called Kathy Rain, A Detective is Born. I tend to talk about a lot of traditional-style point-and-click adventure games on here because I seem to be the only one who cares about the genre. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true, but it feels like that a lot of the time. And this one is probably one of the best I've played in years by simple fact that the design is brilliantly well-crafted. I don't think I ever got stuck once in this game. Mm. The puzzles all feel rational. They feel built in the world. And the story that goes with it is, well, you play as Kathy Rain. She is a journalism college student in the early to mid-90s. And then one day she just finds out her grandfather has passed away. The funeral's tomorrow. Mm. So she hops on her motorbike and goes back to her hometown, and then she gets broiled into this investigation of what happened a couple of years ago that turned her grandfather into a vegetable, and what does that have to do with all these other occurrences, what's being hidden, and then suddenly the whole game turns into a riff on Twin Peaks. There is another world that looks fairly reminiscent of the Red Room. You have strange apparitions appearing before Kathy and then fading into the background. Yeah, I am definitely getting a Twin Peaks vibe looking at screenshots. It does feel like an homage to that. 
I, I described it as Sue Grafton by way of Twin or Twin Peaks by way of Sue Grafton. I don't know if you know what she's written. She wrote the Alphabet series of mysteries. A is for alibi. B is for burglar. And because it's got that same sort of neo-noir in procedural and independent investigation. And then suddenly, but their investigation is taking place in a Twin Peaks-esque place. But the thematic meat of it is that there is a lot of, like, the sins of the past or their eggs are coming home to roost. And it's like the generation that's hit most by it isn't the one that caused the sins, but the one that's having to pick up after them. Like Kathy is having to deal with all this disaster and evil and a pretty dour childhood. Her father left. Her mother got committed to a mental institution. Right. Kind of like hitting everything on the bullet list. Yeah. Does anyone have amnesia? Uh, no, I, I don't believe, no, I don't believe oh, so. It's okay. just, it doesn't dive into that pulp, like, quality. It takes its, uh, it takes its material, like, not, like, overly serious, but with enough somberness to realize that I, what I'm going to do is Im- important, and I'm going to take it serious enough that it isn't a joke. Right. There is, okay, so it has, like, the a less of a melodramatic approach than something like Twin Peaks. Well, Twin Peaks had it had it, especially when it got into the weird stuff. Yeah, had its moments where I have to take this seriously because if anyone else is going to, but the characters themselves have humor have humorous. Like there's this one section where she has to trick campus IT personnel into accidentally giving him his password so she could mm-hmm. activate this program to the next step of the investigation. Right, and and it's got it's got certain humor, and you have a roommate who. You could tell gets on Kathy's nerves, but at the same time, it's like she's so damn nice you can't be angry at her. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she's like Kathy's rock is like a pulling like a punk rock aesthetic, possibly, or a '90s version of it. So the more like the Mormon virtuous girl doesn't it feels like an odd couple scenario that going on there. Mm-hmm. So there, there it has humor. It has. It has grace to know what it's doing, and well, like its ultimate like revelation. It doesn't name it, but it gives enough details and enough context so that you understand like what she, what Kathy is feeling guilt about right. when it's finally revealed. But it doesn't like name it. It doesn't hammer it home, but it gives it. It presents it there just enough to give the emotional resonance. So you know, and it reveals a lot about her acting of the character because like throughout the whole thing, she'll like. She'll talk to priests. She'll talk to the, the local sheriff, and she keeps bringing up, "Yeah, I'm a sinner, and I'm ha- I'm proud of it." And you get the re- but the thing is, you're with her the entire time. It says you're not a bad person. Why do you believe otherwise? Huh? And like I said, it's all in the form of a point-click adventure game. But the it's just to me, it's done so well because it doesn't stumble. Like there's only one puzzle I would call unreasonable. Except it's in universe unreasonable because a corrupt, like a corrupted priest, created this big puzzle to make sure no one ever found out this secret. So in universe it makes sense, and you don't have to find the weird items that go together to do something that no rational human being would think of. So the one puzzle that's actually like a challenge in an unreasonable way is actually not necessary. Well, no, it is necessary, but it, but it's. In universe explanation, it's unreasonable on purpose. Okay, yeah. 
So, yeah, what would you say about the way that the puzzles are integrated into the game? Because that's always an item of contention when looking at things influenced by old point-and-clicks. I feel like everything in the real world feels like this is something you do in an investigation. It's like, okay, I need to check the filing cabinet behind this detective. I need to get the detective out out of his chair. How do I do that? I go to the guy who's in the holding cell and ask, can you start making noise? Detective leaves. You open the filing cabinet. That's a puzzle. It's things that make sense. So they all feel like fairly grounded. There's less like arbitrary item combination for the sake of having a puzzle. I can't think of that there is an arbitrary item combinations at all. The closest I can think of is when you, when uh, one of the, your dad's old friends refuses to speak to you, but one of the other guys there he says, if you want him to open up, just make him this drink, and he, it'll because only your father can make it, and it'll make him re- reminisce. Right. And you just got to find the one, and it's basically a Bloody Mary with one special ingredient in it. So you find the special ingredient, and you move on to the next stage. Right. Okay. It, so it, it sounds make, like it sort of uses them in like in the same way to pace things as, like, as older point-and-click adventure games do, although they're, like, they seem fairly carefully crafted. It it also, because that one thing about here's the thing, your father, it it later becomes a plot point, but it's also a character moment that describes this person that Kathy never knew and that we never see in the game. Right. But has affected all these other people around it. So it's used for character moments. It's used for subtle exposition that you don't realize until the thing comes up again and says, oh, I know what this is now because it was explained earlier. That's neat. It sounds like they're quite well integrated. And one of the best puzzles is a conversation with a person who was committed to a mental asylum because of their experience in the spiritual other world. Right. And he's a guy who's convinced he's stuck out of time because he has already experienced this conversation and the only way for Kathy to be victorious is she has to ask her questions in the right order. Huh. And the puzzle is he'll give you hints or like vague metaphorical hints of what the correct next question is but he can't outright tell you in case the crimson man is listening in. It sets up the tone perfectly because this is a question and answer session that will give you that will help you direct you to the entrance to the other realm, and at that point, everything start, becomes met, metaphorical and metaphysical. Yeah, about that, you talk about this like much more surreal space that one inhabits at times, and then there's also seemingly a, a very grounded physical everyday world that one inhabits. How does he deal with? Uh, having both of those be spaces that one occupies and the transitions between them. Because it, it sounds oh. like so grounded in physicality when you describe the real world. Mm-hmm. And the other world also has those same like elements of physicality. It's just it isn't one that we're used to. It isn't like a, ra- a setup that we expect in the real mm-hmm. world. So... It works to a cer- it works to a certain degree. Like the it functions under same physical laws, but like the rash I guess like the rational laws don't make sense. You have to cut out gears in one place and insert them in another to like cause a machine to work. I don't right. I so it has a sort of an unreal quality, but like kind of an emotional truth. And it's still using yeah. It sounds like the same sort of language that the game has taught you for how the world is put together. Absolutely, especially since. 
that the puzzles reference like metaphorical inner workings of Kathy, like it's a projection of her inner turmoil and inner self, especially when you meet your quote unquote dark self and have to contend with her. To me, it's an exceptional game, and I always feel like whenever I get what I feel is an exceptional game, I do a disservice in my ability to describe it properly. Oh, it's so hard. I mean, especially when you're trying to describe story or setting to convey how the game actually succeeds. Or mystery. Right. That's that's a big one. This is essentially a detective story. It's just that the answer is instead of, like, who did it, Pretty obvious when you get into the spiritual other realm and the guy is called the Crimson Man, whose fault it is. I guess the, the mystery is more about who is Kathy, what does she, what is her real self, and it's her, it's a, I guess, mysteries of self-discovery. Right, right. Because she's so twisted up inside. Hmm. Well. Yeah, it sounds quite well-crafted. It is. Well. Thank you, Lauren, for coming on and talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to checking out the games you brought up. And do you have, and if anyone wants to find your own work or find where you are, where can they find you? Um, my Twitter account, which is just at Lauren Schmidt, um, is the best way to follow my current work. I also have a project page up at vacuumflowers.com if you'd like to see past work. And if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes. We really appreciate it. Every little bit helps. Rate and review so we know what works, what know what doesn't, what we can do better in the future. And if you enjoy this, as long as well, all our other projects at Critical Distance, please take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash critdistance. And if you can, toss a couple of bucks our way. Every bit helps to keep the lights going and everyone paid. Thank you again for listening, and thank you again, Lauren, for coming on. Thank you.